Welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we fight bad information one fact at a time. I'm Alexis Conran, and on this episode, we'll be looking at fact-checking elections. Now, during an election period, there's a lot to gain and a lot to lose. Access to good information is vital to make an informed decision. But how difficult is it to avoid bad information in the lead-up to the polls? We're joined now by the man who coined the phrase fake news, and I'm sure has grown to hate it as much as we do. Craig Silverman is here, media editor at BuzzFeed News. Craig, hello. Hello. Yes. Yes, I have I have difficult feelings about the phrase. Yes. Well, we will get on to that phrase uh, because also joining us is uh, this week is Tom Phillips. He's the editor of Full Fact. He's fact-checked an election or two in his time. Welcome back, Tom. Good to be with you, as always. Now, look, uh, let's let's be upfront about this, uh, Tom. Full fact, you don't like using Craig's phrase, fake news. What's wrong, Tom? Tom? Well, well look, I mean, it's it's less about the phrase fake news. It's just personal animosity towards Craig. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> comes out. That's yeah. good. Uh, no, I mean, the, the phrase fake news, I, I was, it's worth saying. Craig and I used to be colleagues. Back then, it was talking about a very specific thing, a phenomenon in the 2016 election of completely fabricated news websites that were pretending to be news websites, but everything on it was fictitious or plagiarized, and it was done for financial purposes. So that's what it meant. It had a precise meaning when Craig used it, and then, well, then it stopped meaning that quite quickly. <laughs> And there's probably a precise moment where it started to take on that new meaning, which is in in early January of 2017, when not yet President Donald Trump, President-elect Donald Trump, stood up and pointed at a journalist from CNN and said, you are fake news. That wasn't the very first time he'd used the phrase, but it was the first time that it wasn't on Twitter and that it was directed at, you know, a very specific person and member of the media. And really from that point forward, he took ownership of it and fashioned the term fake news at first to really refer to anything, any kind of journalism that was critical of him or that he didn't like. And soon you saw other authoritarian leaders around the world doing the same thing. And soon it came to mean, you know, anything that anyone wanted it to be. Uh, And so I think in in a lot of ways, there are people, if we're talking about, you know, the U.S. election, mostly people on the right who consider fake news to be things like the mainstream media, and the two are kind of interchangeable or anything critical of Trump. And for other people around the world, fake news might actually be falsehoods spreading in their media environment. And for other authoritarian leaders, it's often you know legitimate media or the political opposition. So it's become this malleable term that people throw around to mean whatever they want in a moment. But for the most part, it's become a term to attack the press with. Craig, let's get back to the elections. Now, at any time, the veracity of the information, the validity of that information that everybody's getting is really important. But in election time, it's even more so because people are actually going to use that information to make up their minds. Does fact-checking change during the election period? It certainly gets much more intense. There's a higher volume that you need to crank out at because of the sheer, again, the volume of pronouncements from political candidates all the way up and down, you know, the ballot um, from from your presidential candidates in the U.S. all the way down to more local ones. So uh, so it becomes a much, you know, more involved 
project. And then, of course, you have all the sort of, you know, the information coming out of campaigns as well as the mouths of candidates and other people. So it becomes a lot harder in that sense of the volume problem. But also, of course, it's the moment where because fact checks become uh, something that so many more news organizations do, like news organizations that don't have dedicated fact checkers will suddenly launch a fact checking you know, feature that's part of their newscast or part of their online website. And so you have fact checking becoming, in some cases, an issue in the election where people who are maybe getting dinged by fact checkers really want to work hard to undermine them and maybe label them fake news or biased or that kind of thing. And then you have the fact checkers not only trying to do their jobs in a much more intense data-driven environment, but also dealing with a much higher degree of harassment and threats and other things. And so it becomes a much harder job to do in that moment. And a lot of fact checkers, I think, start to feel really burned out well before election day. And do you think there's also a specific problem that regardless of what the fact check is about, whoever uh, you are fact checking, their fans will turn on to the fact checkers because during the election period, everything becomes partisan? Yeah, the stakes are raised. So whereas in a normal time, sure, a politician, you know, doesn't like being fact-checked typically if, if they're found to be lying or, or misleading people, and their supporters might not like it as well. But the stakes are so much greater because the supporters and the candidate and their campaign want to make sure that nothing can sort of upend their possibility of victory. And so if that means targeting a fact-checker, that's the kind of thing that's going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, also the the kind of undermining of fact-checking and fact-checkers is not necessarily new in the United States. Uh, PolitiFact, as kind of, you know, the dean of fact-checking organizations in the U.S., along with factcheck.org, there for a long time, they've been targeted with accusations of bias. Uh, But I think all of that stuff has become much more intense now that fact-checkers are also, in many cases, partners with Facebook. And Facebook is in the line of fire right now from a lot of politicians as well. So fact checkers have kind of been swept up. And it's not just people disputing the fact checks or saying they're biased. They're seen as part of a media machine, a big tech machine that some people are really trying to undermine as part of, you know, helping get their their candidates elected. Tom, uh, we were in election period almost 12 months ago. Is there a big difference between what's happening in the US with what Craig's been describing to what happened when you were fact-checking the election uh, almost 12 months ago? I mean, there are similarities. The difference really is scale. I mean, for a start, American elections are just much bigger. There are many more elections happening at the same time in many ways. You know, you've got not just the presidential, you've got the Senate, you've got the House, you've got lots and lots of local things, but also they're much longer. Donald Trump effectively launched his re-election campaign, I think it was 29 days after his inauguration. He held his first rally. They go on for so long. They're just it's much greater scale. We saw things in our election, which was, you know, pretty intense, that bore similarities. You know, there was the Conservatives had their misleadingly edited video of Keir Starmer that they put out. You know, you had Labour putting out the documents from uh, the US-UK trade negotiations, which were of uncertain provenance. And so there were things in that territory, similar things that we're seeing, but it was nowhere near as, you know, equivalent to the, the tsunami of stuff that our American colleagues are having to deal with. 
And also, you know, just as I said, the, the election period is just much shorter. It's insanity in the U.S. that they make it like I'm Canadian. Right. But I have to deal with American politics as part of my beat. And it's insane how long this thing goes on for. It is punishment. It's, you know, <laughs> I commiserate with with other reporters about this and other non-American reporters who cover American politics. It's just like how I feel like it hasn't stopped since 2016. It really hasn't, has it? Like, I mean, it, it's just no. been, it's been constant. I mean, I guess the plus side of that is that you had a lot of rehearsal. I mean, you look at like Daniel Dale from CNN, who's sort of got a lot of credit for his sort of rapid fact-checking that he does on, on a lot of this stuff. He's able to do that because he's seen every Trump speech and he repeats his lines. So he's got the fact-checks ready to go. Whereas in shorter election campaigns, everything that's being said is new. And so you're having to do it on the fly. Craig, are you jealous when you look at other countries uh, and their, their electoral campaigns being a lot shorter? Well, I mean, look, when when I have a Canadian election roll around and Canada isn't obviously my primary area of focus, I mean, it just seems so wonderful and adorable. It's like, oh, we're going to have this done in five weeks. Wonderful. <laughs> Let's get it on, you know, and everybody sort of ramps up and uh, and then it chills out after. But you know, it's a very unique moment in American politics. And in general, the critique that American politics is just this never ending spectacle. And it's just getting longer and longer, the campaign cycles like that's predates Trump. But because Trump is such a source of chaos, and that is built into kind of his model of governance, it just makes everything feel so much more intense and nonstop. I mean, the joke about that you see all the time people tweeting or what have you, where they'll they'll list a bunch of crazy things that have happened in the U.S. and then be like, and that's just since Tuesday, is totally valid. Uh, and on a and on a real level, the burnout that can happen and the toll that it takes on people trying to keep up with things, and also dealing with really the fire hose of falsehood that is now the information ecosystem in the U.S., it can really grind you down when it's your beat to do this stuff. What have been the main fact-checking battlegrounds, so to speak, in this uh, U.S. presidential election? Where where have you had to do most of your work? Well, I, I think in terms of the disputed stuff, it's probably not a surprise to hear that coronavirus-related information and claims is probably one of the big areas. That's that's a lot of what Trump and Biden are battling each other over. Um, and, you know, it's as simple things as, you know, in the last debate where Trump was talking about the virus receding and having low counts in certain states, and those states were, you know, spiking at that very moment. The stakes of that are really quite high. So we've certainly paid very close attention to coronavirus related stuff because the potential for harm is really significant there. So when, you know, in the past, when Trump talked about using bleach, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you you can't just leave on the table because there are absolutely people who take what he says very seriously and you need to help push out in the public record something there in the hope that those people might see it. And then there's other stuff that feels almost quaint in a throwback where the dispute over what Joe Biden has or hasn't said about his position on fracking. That feels like the kind of normal political spin that you would see in a normal campaign, which this otherwise doesn't feel like, where, you know, Biden has said some things about wanting to get rid of fracking and banning fracking. And his the statements he makes about it at times are sort of wishy-washy and seemingly contradictory. And that's the kind of thing that in the old school, 
might actually be a big deal, but in the aggregate of all the other stuff that's out there, it seems like a small kind of quaint thing. Um, and last one that is really big, and actually it was a conversation I had with my colleague Jane Linfinenko this morning, is about all of the claims around Hunter Biden and his business activities and how those do or don't connect to Joe Biden and whether or not Joe Biden benefited from those and, and all of those things. That has been a place where I think newsrooms have, and, and platforms as well, as sort of famously known, have had to make a lot of calls and really discuss and talk about how we address it. And that's much bigger than just sort of like, are we going to fact check a specific claim about Hunter Biden and more about how do we deal with and engage with this in a way where the questionable elements of this information <clears throat> and the claims being made from it um, are not going to take root in our efforts to try and sort of sift through and see what's real and what's not. From one of our previous episodes, we were talking about elections around the world. We were talking to fact checkers in Argentina, and they were talking about several fact checks or stories that always pop up when there are elections. So things like, I think we saw it this year around again with Joe Biden, with uh, Joe Biden wearing it, apparently wearing an earpiece, a story going around. Have you seen any sort of old perennials make their way back into the conversation during this presidential uh, election campaign? The earpiece is, is exactly that, because there were rumors about an earpiece with George W. Bush going back a long time. There have been rumors about listening devices and those kinds of things going back in debates, you know, a good uh, decade and more. And so, and again, it's, it's like you see those things and part of you is like, I can't believe we're going through this again. But part of you is sort of like the nostalgic for a time when that was something that was mostly in, it was a little more in the fever swamps and it might bubble up a little bit, but it wasn't like more mainstream conversation. And so it's, it's actually a great sort of measuring stick because if I think about the claims around Bush wearing a listening device all those years ago, I mean, that spread through email, it was on more fringy sites and eventually mainstream media sort of discussed it in sort of a, isn't this a ridiculous thing? Can, can, can you believe it? And the campaigns didn't really engage with it all that much. Whereas today, you actually had people closely aligned with the Trump campaign, um, you know, others who are, you know, very much towards the center of power, who were actively trying to push that claim about Joe Biden, because it aligned with their existing narrative, they were trying to push that he's a fumbling, bumbling old man. And so I think it's, it's a great example in that sense, because yes, we've seen it before, but it was much more mainstreamed and much more given the seal of approval by the Republican campaign compared to what the Democratic campaign did all those years ago when it was George W. Bush getting targeted with the false claim. I don't know what it is about earpieces, but I mean, we've had that over here as well. Boris Johnson was wearing an earpiece, supposedly. You know, it's, it's something weird about the idea of people wearing an earpiece. It seems to resonate with people and has done for decades. I mean, if you've ever actually tried to speak whilst wearing an earpiece, it's really hard. <laughs> I have to do it all the time in my job as a presenter. And yes, I can tell you that it is, it's a bit like patting your head and rubbing your tummy. It's not something that you could do very easily because you have to concentrate on what's coming out of your mouth whilst actually processing completely different information. How different is this election in 2020 with the one in 2016? It does seem to me, and I'd love to know what Craig thinks of this, that some of the things that were sort of being seen in 2016 have kind of gone away a little bit. I'm not getting a sense that the Macedonian teenagers running fake news websites is quite as big a deal this time around. I might have missed that, though. That is true. There are some things that have gotten better. 
and then some things that have, that I think have gotten worse. And so if we and if we take those Macedonians as a you know in some cases a pure example of fake news because it was a lot of false stuff created to deceive and meant to earn money, that as well as the domestic actors who were doing that, it was way easier to get away with that to get money to get lots of engagement in 2016. So pure falsehoods did pretty well then. But today, that's much harder. And, and a big reason for that, I do think, is the program that like Facebook took that as the low-hanging fruit and said, all right, we're going to partner with fact checkers and they're going to go after like 100% demonstrably false, deceptive content. Like that is the easiest thing for a fact checker to go after and knock down. It takes the least amount of time and you can sort of uh, get at it very quickly. But, but what we certainly still see is a massive hyperpartisan universe in the information ecosystem in the US where there is a lot of misleading or extremely torqued or just very aggressively partisan stuff, not just sort of like, hey, you know, the other side, don't vote for them, their policies are bad for you. But, you know, the other side is pedophiles, and they're going to take away your Christmas, and they're going to take away this and that. It is, so the rancor has continued to accelerate. The amount of borderline content meant to sort of make it difficult for fact checkers and make it difficult for platforms to act on has filled the gap that has been left by a lot of the deterioration of the purely fake stuff. And of course, we've had four years of Trump and the Republican Party sort of in his image, really pushing the boundaries of promoting Q, uh, QAnon and other conspiratorial things that, that they see as benefiting them. So, the, you know, some of, the, some of the pure fake we've made some improvement on. But in terms of a conspiratorial and potentially, uh, you know, dangerous harassment and, you know, plots against governors... I mean, you can look at that and say, like, there's a there's a bunch of other things that have gotten much worse since 2016. Let, let's look to the future before we wrap up. And I want to get uh, both of your opinions on this. Um, Craig, first of all, we've seen that social media companies are slowly but surely starting to acknowledge that, yes, they do play a part when it comes to elections. Now, some people may criticize them for not having done so a lot quicker, but we are where we are. What do you think the future will look like in election 2024 when it comes to social media and their interactions with the public? We've been in a process since 2016 of them starting to kind of realize one, as you said, the influence that they have and that that even though they thought previously they were sort of hands off and had these policies, they realize now that no, actually they're making a lot of very important and impactful decisions. I think we'll have um, some, perhaps some new legislation, particularly maybe in the US around some of these areas. I don't think there'll be necessarily huge broad regulation around the platforms, but I think some of the rules are gonna be a little bit clearer around what they can and can't do, which in some ways might actually be a relief to them if they can point to law and say like, hey, we're just doing what, you know, what everyone wants. And I think that the broader trend of that is they're going to be a little more hands-on. Things are going to continue to be a little more restrictive. They're going to exercise more control over their platforms. And there are going to be cases where maybe they're nipping some stuff in the bud that really does have clear harm. And there's going to be other cases where they screw up and they're silencing things that they shouldn't be. And I suspect they will continue to do things like fun fact checkers. Uh, I suspect, you know, Facebook will be joined by many more platforms, um, as is already happening. Like, I believe TikTok is even working with some fact checkers right now. So I expect to see more of that by the time we get to 2024. Tom, more regulation, more rules? Is that is that the answer? It's part of the answer. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, here in the UK, at Full Pack, we've been calling for updated election law 
for years, as have many, many other people. So it's really beyond time that our election laws were updated. But the laws and the regulation, and again, what the regulation of the, the, the platforms will be, I think part of it comes back to something that Craig said, which is the extent to which this gets folded into the ecosystem. Fact-checking is a thing, as he said, many news organizations spin up fact-checking operations during elections. It's become part of the thing. So campaigns start to look at how they can game that system. And so it's a question of whether or not it starts to become an arms race between trying to see what you can get away with, what the fact-checkers will go, "Mm, that's, you know, what's on that side, or indeed just completely ignoring it. Uh, You know, so it's a question of exactly how the sort of campaign ecosystem reacts to the existence of fact-checking and it being this sort of known thing. That's going to really be a case for it. Can fact-checkers, I hope that we'll be able to, can they actually make it so that it's just easier for the parties to be honest and accurate? It saves them the hassle. It's, you know, that's a better approach to winning an election. Or are you going to see people who learn the lesson from this and go, actually, honesty is not the thing that wins you elections. It's telling stories that appeal to people's instincts. Now, I'm fairly hopeful. I think like Craig, I think it's going to get better. I think that people are going to learn different lessons from it. But I think we're actually potentially on a road that will improve, but it's going to require constant vigilance and it's going to require thinking ahead. We can't be in a situation where we're fighting the last war. We've got to be looking at what might be happening in the future. And, you know, that's the kind of work that Full Fact's going to keep doing, as I'm sure all of our colleagues around the world will. Uh, and of course, if, if we keep doing the, the, the work, as you mentioned, Tom and Craig, uh, uh, and people also take matters into their own hands. I mean, most of the messages that keep coming out, and I think they are having an effect, um, is to educating people, the general public, to fact check before they share all those things are going to start to permeate i think they certainly are permeating um with the younger generation i see i've got a 14 year old daughter she is starting to become way more conscious that what she sees online is not necessarily true so she starts to think before she shares if if that permeates with the youth then perhaps uh, perhaps there is a bright future uh, gentlemen uh thank you we've run out of time that is a fascinating uh chat uh, this episode was released on the 2nd of November 2020. So if you're listening to us in the future, please bear in mind this was recorded before the results of the 2020 US election. Craig Silverman is an expert in his field, but his views are not necessarily a reflection of full facts. Full fact is independent and impartial. And you can read more about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. <laughs>